0: A Podcast One production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm on the Gold Coast for this one, chatting to two-time MotoGP world champion Casey Stoner. I've always had a good rapport with Casey right throughout his race career, even if some of my colleagues didn't. This is his story in his own words. Listen to it in full and in context before you form an opinion. Maybe it'll even change your view. He typically doesn't do these kind of interviews in post-race life where he's largely escaped the limelight. For me, it's a story of incredible commitment, one you may never have heard before or perhaps didn't fully appreciate. I think it's tremendous that someone from very humble beginnings was able to get there on pure talent and immense tenacity. I mean immense. After all, it's a game where money absolutely makes a difference in the quality of opportunities in the early years at Grand Prix level. It's like he was born to do it, that Casey and bikes were just meant to be. But make no mistake, the fire in the belly was a big part of it too.
1: Um, I think it was more just me being competitive than necessarily uh, being a bike because, you know, I believe anything I sort of stuck my mind to, if I had the time to do it, um, I believe I could have become as successful in. Um, Not everything, of course, but um, there's certain sports that I know I've picked up very, very late and, you know, I know with the right amount of time or... Um, a, a body that's working, um, you know, we could get to a reasonable level on. So I think with motorbikes, it wasn't necessarily just the love of bikes, but the, um, the love of improvement and trying to be a perfectionist, essentially. Um, essentially why I got uh, criticized through my career about being always unhappy, because whether I won or lost, um, sometimes I was unhappy even when I won because I knew I didn't do the, the best race I could. So if I made mistakes, I was very hard on myself with it. And uh, I think that's where it came from, or just sort of competitiveness. So those tenths of a second out of motorcycles is is a fantastic um, drug for me,
0: I suppose. I've seen on socials that you've been doing a bit of golf lately. So does that, does that same mentality even apply now when, you've, when you're when you know, trying to improve as a, as a golfer? Um,
1: not so much. I don't have to... Um, I don't have to make it happen Um, it's sort of like I want to enjoy golf and I want to improve with it but I don't have to whereas with motorcycles I had a fair bit of pressure on me to make it happen Mm. Um, and that's very very different Um, even with cycling you know I was always when I was training I was trying to to really get to a a reasonably good level Um, and that's where my sort of motivation was to train rather than training for motorcycling I was training to be a cyclist let's say Mm. Um, and that just fed back to uh, motorcycles. Um, and it's the same kind of thing with golf. I'm, I want to be better at it, but it's, it's not as much need. So I don't have that same, uh, I'm not as critical on myself. I still am a little bit, but nowhere near it what I was on a bike. Is that a
0: post-racing sort of conscious change
1: that you've made? Or- um, to be honest, even in my later years in racing, um, I learned to be okay with, with bad results, whereas in my early career, um, even in MotoGP, I was, I was far too critical of myself. And I think it was good for me to be critical. Um, but I felt ashamed half the time when I did make a mistake or I didn't get the, the result that I was looking for that weekend. You know, it was, I was ashamed of myself. Rather than in my later career, I learned that I, I, I can only do what I can do and I cannot do more than that. And it's something that I've really tried to, to implement in every aspect of life and other people's careers as well. Um, is that no matter what happens around you, just do the best you can and you can't do better than that. So there's no point in trying or worrying about the future that can go wrong.
0: Um, just sort of live in the moment and do the best. Did someone help you with that or was it being around other successful athletes or is it just something that you came to terms with yourself? Uh, just something I
1: came to terms with myself. Um, there's one thing my, my trainer, Anthony Peden, um used to be uh used to have quite a good saying is happy mind fast body which a lot of people um the people that believe that if they don't train through the week then there's no way they can win or no way they can be competitive they've already gone into the weekend Mm -hmm. say they've got an injury and they can't train Mm -hmm. so many people go into that next weekend going i haven't trained there's no way i can win there's no way i can do well um but if you, your mind's good, you know you've done the pre-work, your body's going to carry you through it anyway. It's going to carry you through the hard times. Um, and it did that for me back in 2009 when I was struggling. Uh, I didn't train for sort of eight months and, uh, and I was off completely for three of those months trying to figure out what was wrong before we found out it was lactose. And, um, yeah, it, it carried me through the rest of that, no problem, because we did the hard yards before. Um, but, yeah, just not letting those sort of things get in my way, um, and another good thing i like to to say is people need to get out of their own way sometimes those people that are so critical on their training and their regime as soon as things aren't right their heads already screwed but you'll find that often riders uh, and athletes that are injured will have some of the best results they've ever got because they got out of their own way they overcomplicate everything um with their own mind and their own thoughts so when they go oh I've got no expectations because I'm injured or I'm unwell this weekend, they'll often have their best results because, again, they got out of their own way. Come
0: back to the passion for bikes. There's some great photos in the book that you did with with Matt Roberts and, and you know, your dad chasing you around and you're trying to more or less escape the dog as a young fella and things. What was that bike and what are your earliest recollections of, of being on a motorcycle?
1: To be honest, um, I've struggled with my re- memory in recent times. So most of my memories come from home videos or um or pictures i don't have any um that don't know i've i've really had some um, health issues in these last years and and um struggling a lot with memory and things like that so i don't have any first memory of being on a bike it all comes from what i see on photos Mm -hmm. i don't remember a passion i don't remember a feeling or an excitement um anything like that so um, it all just goes back off what everyone else can see. so, And I roughly knew what it was like at the time.
0: Amazing. The move ultimately to to go racing, there's some terrific stuff in there of, of people when you were at such a young age. I mean, um, Paul Feeney, uh, originally uh, uh, the Husqvarna distributor here in Australia, a successful motorcycle shop and, and dealer owner, at more or less the insistence of your dad to come and see you ride, being wowed by... The way you were on the machine and how you had it absolutely maxed out, similar endorsements from guys like uh, Scott Dewan, you chasing Aaron Slide, who went on to do some great things in in superbikes, as this little tacker up against them, it was it was remarkable, mate.
1: Yeah, well, um, Paul Feeney was the Kawasaki distributor at the time, so. Um so, yeah, I think Dad pestered him to, to, to come down and watch. And, I mean, getting an opportunity to um, to be on track with those guys was something special. Um, again, I can't remember the day and, and what it was like. I can only imagine what it was like back then as, as a five-year-old looking up to him. Um, you know, I watched every race, every motorsport race, basically, that was that existed back then. Uh, and Mick was there on that day, but I was never on track with him. Uh, he was on track by himself most of the time or at a different time. But, um yeah i mean it was incredible and you know it was it was nice to get praise off those people and and for them to pay attention to such a young kid uh and it was massive help from paul um that really gave us the 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 kick i suppose to get through our dirt track career because without him and without his contacts that he put us in contact with um we would have really struggled to to get through the dirt track years and from that make it to road racing which was in the uk and again, you get more help along the way. And without those few people, those standout people that helped us, um, you
0: know, we certainly wouldn't be where we are today. Your story, you know, right the way up until you won World Championships is one of, of struggle, the word that you use, and sacrifice, great sacrifice. Um, I, I want to, in, the, in wrapping up the, the stuff about, you know, Fiend and, and uh, others watching you as a youngster, they would talk about you, this little tacker, bombing it in up the inside under brakes when others were on bigger, higher-capacity motorcycles and you were on the gas sooner than them on the way out of corners and things like that. It was very clear as a, as a youngster that, that you had it, mate.
1: Um, I think so. I mean, I, I had a lot of good competition as well growing up. Uh, there was a few riders in particular that, like that who? always kept me honest. Um, I'd say my greatest competitor was Hayden McBride. Mm-hmm. Um He's somebody who I believe, if he stuck with the motorcycle route and and um, and had the opportunities to to sort of keep going, um, you know, I personally don't have any doubt that he would have ended up in in MotoGP or at least World Superbikes. You know, he was he was fantastically fast. Um, we just managed to get those championships over him each time, and it would literally come down to the last race every time between us. Um, we were that close and competitors he, he was a very very quick rider so um, you know it's things like that that sort of I suppose helped us evolve um, you know there's always been good good competition throughout Australia and during that time there was a lot of good riders coming through as well before that um, it was the time of, of Mick and Wayne and um, Scott and Aaron all that sort of stuff coming through the same sort of time so um, it made it it made me have to work that much harder um we found that we're winning just about everything in in southeast queensland here when we were traveling and um when we went down to new south wales we not necessarily but kind of got our asses handed to us a little bit um when we first the
0: stakes or the the competition was tougher
1: competition was a lot tougher down there so that's why we ended up moving down to the hunter valley Mm -hmm. um to chase the competition because the only way to improve yourself is to go wherever the hardest guys are and Mm The Hunter Valley makes um makes some pretty tough people down there. So we went down there and I suppose learned how to ride a little differently. I, and um, yeah, that made me a more complete rider and you know, more complete rider overall.
0: Dirt track is something that uh, lots of Aussie motorcycle riders nowadays praise. They say that that grounding, the, the skills that you learn from that style of riding. And I think in your case, is it fair to say that it, it, it really was a great foundation? It served you so well right throughout your career, didn't it?
1: Fantastic. I think um, in Australia at, at my time, we didn't have enough opportunities for road racing, mm-hmm. you know, mini motos or anything like that to get on a go-kart track. We had the Murawaki 80s at one point, but there's still nothing in comparison to a 125. Mm. Couldn't get on them until you're 16. Um, So by that time, your career's already – you're already on the back foot compared to the Europeans. So when we get onto the big bikes, then we're okay. That's where dirt track comes back to us. Mm. But when you're on a 125 or nowadays motor three, motor two, but 125 and 250 – that's a whole different ball game. You've got to trust the front so far. It's, you've got to have so much corner speed. something you don't learn in dirt track, certainly not on the tracks we have. Um, and so you really end up on the back foot. All the guys coming from the US dirt track or Australia dirt track really struggle with the lower categories because we just don't run that corner speed. And uh, now that it's Moto 3, Moto 2, it's a little easier. They've got a bit more punch out of the corners. You don't need to run the corner speed that you used to have to on a 125. Um, and that's something that I really struggle with. And you have to you have to get through those categories to get to the big one where the dirt track comes back to you. Mm. So as much as it was an advantage, it was a big disadvantage when we got to Europe. Um, you get over there and I think that's why so many people have struggled and failed in the 125 class uh, and often haven't gone past that is because the Europeans just had so much advantage on us riding those that, that corner speed and getting used to riding on slick tyres from such a young age we just didn't have.
0: We'll get to that move to the UK and and your decision to go down that path at such a young age in a second. I want to have a little walk down memory lane with you for, for a moment here. I can recall... My buddy Lee Diffie and I in the mid-90s were aspiring commentators wanting to, you know, try and make it in television and the, the like. And we would have this arrangement where if he got a better offer, I would try and cover for him on another meeting and vice versa. So he was big in dirt track at, at that stage and he, he had some opportunity come up somewhere and I subbed for him at, I want to say, the Akubra Nationals at Tamworth. Mm-hmm. I may have even kept the program from from way back then. And they were, they were awesome days because the, the day was filled with races. And I reckon I can recall meeting you for the first time as a young bloke, a real young bloke, and you would have been in more than one class on the day. Looking at the book as well, your mum regularly kept like a, like a diary, more or less, didn't she, of, of how you went in not just two classes, sometimes three. Um, most of the time, four. Mega. Um, So
1: I think we're the only... um, I'm the only person in Australia to win four Aussie titles in in a single uh, meeting. And we managed to win five as well because my birthday fell on the right date that um, I could run uh, Big Wheel 80 at the same same weekend. Um, Tamworth was probably my worst track in Australia, to be honest. It was always a challenge for me. Um, It's actually where I did my shoulder that ended up playing up on me in 2006... A uh, kid crashed in front of me in turn one. Went over the handlebars, tore all my um, shoulder ligaments, and ended up having to get that fixed in 2006, which was 10 years later. Wow! Um, testing, I was just riding, and it started really playing up to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't ride anymore. So we ended up having to get the rotator cuff fixed. And all, all, but it dated I back know, to that. Dated back to that. I'd had nothing but problems since that moment, and uh, that's where my ligament problems started. I didn't break many bones throughout my career, almost none but I sure as hell tore some ligaments, which um, they're not fun to try and come back from.
0: The pump and hold method for brake bleeding is when the brake pedal is pressed while one bleed screw at a time is opened, allowing air to escape. Diff did a great story for a show called RPM, which ran on Channel 10 and still does for for many years, a magazine show on on motorsport. He was in England at the time and he was working on the World Superbike Championship and he covered meeting a young Casey Stoner and his family, living out of a bus, doing it enormously tough, trying to make, make your way in Europe for the first time. Give people a sense of why you left Australia to go and chase that dream, but also how touch and go it was. I mean, mum and dad m- m- more or less put it all on the line, didn't they?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we, we I suppose um, through several things, um, didn't make a lot of friends in, in dirt track in Australia. And there was one class, um, Marawaki 80 class, which you could run when you were 14. And um, so we went, got my license for it. But to race, you had to be a member of a club. And there was only one club going at the time and that was run by all my competitors parents and they revoked my um they revoked my uh, application to to join the club so that basically stopped us any chance racing in australia before i was 16
0: how'd you feel about that
1: um i mean i was young at the time so that just always made me more determined whenever i heard anybody say anything um you know you hadn't raced some competitors in years and and um, say they were from Queensland or Victoria or somewhere else and then they start talking and someone's going, going to kick your ass and it, um, it always <laughs> gave me a little extra motivation, yeah. Baby. So, um, so yeah, it was the same kind of deal. And we looked at a lot of options. We looked at going through Asia, um, through the Underbone Series in Indonesia and all that sort of stuff, just just looking for an option. And through my dad's right of abode going to the UK, we, uh, we got our chance over there. Um, but, yeah, I mean we got over there and we were doing well but we we nearly ran out of money after three months so um it it was you know i think at the time it was three aussie dollars pretty much to one british pound Mm. so um everything just disappears very very quickly and And uh, how did you keep the dream going then and and if it came that close i mean it was all thanks to um to lloyd lifestyle uh george lloyd was um was running a company that uh imported leathers and helmets and things like that and um uh, a person called Ian Newton who runs the Aprile Challenge over in the UK he knew how much we were struggling because we spent a lot of time with him um, trying to understand how everything worked over there and uh, he put us in contact with with George um, George sponsored us and paid for my, my running of that year which allowed us to kind of live, gave Dad a job as well um, and pretty much helped us survive, you know without George uh, we, we really I don't think we would have survived through that year and then through those opportunities came, uh, we did a couple of races in the Spanish Championship, uh, proved enough to Alberto Puj to put us on the program the next year, managed to get to that, and it all, you know, the rest is history. We got into 250s um, through Checanello because Puj put us in contact. And, um, yeah, it's just one step after the other, but it's one important person in your career um, making those steps happen. That, um, that gave us a chance to get to where we ended up.
0: Did you enjoy the the road racing bikes? And, and I mean, you've kind of alluded to some of the challenges um, and the, the differences to what you'd, you'd encountered in dirt track terms here, but did you enjoy it? Uh, quite honestly, I didn't mind road racing,
1: um, but I actually never found a passion for it like I had with dirt. Um, I've, always, I've always loved dirt track. I've always loved the dirt, even though I haven't ridden it pretty much since I started road racing. I've done very little. Mm. Um, I always found road racing not so much a job, but I found it. Um, you know that was that was my challenge. Those tents are where I where I enjoyed it. Um, you put a lap timer on my bike. I was happy. I just keep going around until I just kept getting better and better and learning how to get through um, certain corners that I struggle with. It was always kicking goals for me. Um, I ne- never necessarily had a huge passion for road racing. Um, I think it was just the the fine details that kept me um, kept the spark going for me with that
0: You mentioned Alberto Puj a moment ago and Lucio Cechinello for that, that matter as well I, I have just come in the last few weeks from a function with both of them at, uh, at Phillip Island around the, the Grand Prix both still speak you know, enormously highly of you along the way supporters like those that you've mentioned but also people that, that kind of mentor those that are immersed in the game like those two are immensely important as well aren't they?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, I, th- I think that's probably one thing I missed out on uh, and and something that would have probably helped my career last a little longer. Um, once, uh, you know, Alberto basically was forced to choose between myself or Danny when we were um, coming up through the, the movie star ranks, I suppose um and he chose danny through spain he had a good relationship with him um we all still kept a great relationship but he had to go with danny and choose one and from that moment on we're kind of on our own Mm -hmm. and you know we were we'd struggle year after year you know we we struggled for results we struggled to get contracts you've got europeans coming in underneath you trying to put money in in front of team owners hands um we had help from the Grand Prix Association because, of, um, because we're Australian and one of the only ones in the championship. So that sort of helped us, I suppose, sometimes keep a seat when maybe we wouldn't have. But what a lot of people don't know is that I didn't have a contract and I didn't have a bike until the start of each year. I didn't have it done the year before like everyone else gets done. We literally had nothing until the start of each year until 06 when I was signed with Ducati at the end of the year ready. For 2007, that was the only year, end of year that I was signed off, ready to go for the next year, and then of course it continued after that. But before then, I never had a contract for the next year.
0: Every so, single one of them fell through. So does that mean that every Australian summer you were kind of hoping, not knowing it could have all been over in some respects? Very much so.
1: It was um, it was quite tight at times. Um, just not knowing where we we're going to be if we're going to be in two fifties, one two fives. We had contracts just constantly fall through, which is you know everybody's just playing the game and um, say using me to get their riders to pay a bit more or ride for less and all this sort of stuff. So this happened time and time again, um, and yeah, it was it was quite hard as an Aussie, um, especially when we had a reputation for being the crasher and all this sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was hard going but it is for a lot of riders um you know especially ones that don't have the the support with the money um just to get them across the line so that the sponsor or the the manufacturer goes okay yeah these guys can can have that bike Uh,
0: lots of people in life talk about you know if you want to play on the big stage you've got to put up with all the things that that come with that Mm -hmm. but as a young man you're exposed to the immense politics and gamesmanship that goes on in the background did that leave a bad taste in your mouth about that side of the business at that point in time, given that that was happening? that point in time, no. Um,
1: you know, I, I never took those as... I mean, of course, we were never happy about it, but at the same time, never never looked too harshly upon it. I think that happened more um, with what happened in 2009. I, I got a bad taste in my mouth from that, and it never really got better, to be honest. Um, Just explain that for people that are listening that don't understand uh, so in 2009 when I had my, um, well, my fatigue issues would ended up being um, lactose intolerance. We had a lot of people um, that, of course, you think of friends you've had great relationships with, you've worked your ass off for. Um, and within a month, not even, of stepping aside for a little while because I was struggling that year, you know, we were vomiting after every race. I just couldn't physically ride the bike anymore and we had no idea. I'd been through every doctor uh, imaginable trying to figure it out nobody really could uh, until I came back to Australia and did things my own way um, but basically a lot of people we, we thought very highly of uh, turned their backs on us very very quickly and we realised that it's very much a business for everyone then and it sort of changed changed the taste for me for me it was all about being part of a team it wasn't a one man sport even though it kind of is it's not you need your team there uh, I love that aspect of it going through thick and thin you know win and lose together but um but yeah there were certain people that yeah really turned their backs and manufacturers that um you know hadn't achieved anything before we got there and they turned their backs on us instantly offered my competitors double my pay things like that it's just it left a really bad taste in our mouth for the short amount of time i was gone Mm -hmm. uh it was amazing how quickly people um people like to walk all over you so that actually gave me a bit of determination for the next couple of years to um, to really make a change and make things happen. So um, I then sort of followed my dreams and
0: my paths that I'd set out before then. Come back to the bikes in a second. Does that lactose intolerance still kind of affect you to this day? Are you very careful with diet and things like that?
1: Not as much these days because I'm not, I'm not at the peak level fitness. Uh, I still don't have lactose, mm-hmm. but say if it's got a bit of cheese or something like that, I'm I'm a little bit more relaxed with it. Um, I've still got my tablets that I take, so it breaks it all down. It's not a problem. Um, I'm actually struggling with some chronic fatigue at the moment, which okay. is not good. Since uh, about August September last year, it hit me. Um, started realizing something was wrong when golf was becoming very physical sport for me. Okay. Um, And, yeah, so I've been on and off different tablets and things like that trying to uh, help combat that and get me through the day a little bit more. I hope you get on top of that, mate. Mm.
0: Two-stroke or four-stroke? Because when you came through dirt track in Australia, you're in the early sort of uh, second and third tier, if you like, of what we now know as MotoGP. Back then it was 125 and 250cc. What's your preference if you had to... Pick one or the other. Uh two stroke every day of the week. Awesome. Tell I, me why.
1: <laughs> it was actually something that really disappointed me when I got to MotoGP GP was the moment that it went four stroke. Yeah. And that couldn't have hurt me anymore. I never You would have loved to have ridden a five hundred like that, like Mick and those boys. Yeah. I never wanted to ride a four stroke. Still to this day, if I get any option, if you give me two bikes, I'll take the two stroke. Um so it really hurts. I think there's an art to riding a two stroke. Uh, Whereas I think four strokes are very, very forgiving. Um, How to ride their power, how to ride so many aspects of them, they're very, very forgiving. Um, And that's why I think Moto3, Moto2, I'm just not seeing that same level of detail Mm -hmm. that there was in the past. And even down to the engineers, I used to love it because you knew there was a few engineers in the paddock that were the best two-stroke engineers. And you saw their bikes flying every time. They always had them pretty well dialed, there's an art to every aspect of the old two-strokes. Whereas these days, you know, you've got the Moto2 class, everyone's on the same engine, you know, and even Moto3, the engines are all pretty close. Uh, there's no there's no getting the jetting right. There's no, you know, the, the whole team was part of the result back in the day. Whereas these days, it's very much just the rider and a bit of setup. So um, I don't see it as being quite the, the passion sport, I suppose, in every aspect you got the mechanics That just work on the bikes Everything's done by computer And engineers now On, uh, on the computers And all their parameters um, But yeah You don't have that touch and feel Like the old engineers used to have So it was the same for a rider You, you really had to know How to ride a two-stroke uh, and when it wasn't running well on that particular day and it was a little um, tough to come on the first part of the throttle, things like you had, to, you had to make your way around it. You had to learn how to ride it and still get a, try and get a result out of it. So, um, yeah, I miss those days.
0: You're a competitive person, so maybe you didn't have a, <clears throat> a hero per se, but was it Mick Who were the guys that sort of inspired you back as a young man? Um, without
1: a doubt, Mick. Um not only because of his results and things like that, but what he came back from um Mick was my guy before he had the accident, and it I was distraught when he did have the accident, and I didn't think he would come back and do what he did, so the fact that he managed to you know pick himself back up from that and um and come back to the top and on and off the track, Mick um you know leads the way for me, so in my opinion, nobody's ever um matched Mick's results. Because nobody's ever had to go through what he did to get the results he did. And um and yeah, he's still always been the the shining light. I never wanted to be better than Mick. I always wanted to be as good. So if I had the opportunity, which I didn't, I didn't do the job, but if I had won five championships, I wouldn't have won six. I would have called it quit right then. Is that right? Yeah. So um, you know, he really paved the way for me and no matter how hard things got it was always uh, a good reminder to know what he went through
0: let me paint a little picture for the audience here in that answer because Casey gave it with a with a real smile as well so there's real admiration there for for what Mick Doohan uh, did when you got that break to get on the Ducati and and um, you know move into the the premier class when you rode the bike for the first time it, it set off a phenomenal chapter for you but what was it like the first time you rode it, and have you have you got vivid memories of that?
1: Uh, the of the Ducati, yeah. Um, so I rode the Honda the year before, and I remember from the Aprilia 250 to the Honda Motor GP, The Honda G P was way easier to ride. The the Aprilia 250 was a handful. It was it was a really difficult bike to ride. In what way? Uh, in every way. It's it's power. The the chassis used to want to freaking high-side you to the moon all the time. So getting it right was very very tricky. And I get on a MotoGP bike and it's going to slide and move a little bit more. That dirt track comes back to me. Mm -hmm. So with the 250, I couldn't use my dirt track skills still. But as soon as I got on a MotoGP bike, it's like, oh, this is comfortable, this is home. Um, And then when I got off the Honda 990 and we went back to the 800s, which everything, they all became light switches because they're trying to to get maximum power out of them, in particular Ducati. I think it revved to (laughs) 21,000 RPM in that test. They knocked it back to, um, to get engine reliability. By the next season but um i remember my first uh, my first few laps and first exit um all i thought was what the hell have i done why why <laughs> it was an absolute pig to ride really? um the gearbox was rough the engine was was rough the whole bike vibrated it was worse than a two-stroke um didn't want to go around corners didn't want to come out of corners it's trying to buck you and high side you and um, I just thought, wow, this is going to be a really long year because, um, yeah, after coming off the Honda from the year before, which was just the most silky smooth, beautiful bike, and then getting on that, I thought, yeah, there's no way we're getting any results on this thing. So um, it was, it was nice. By the end of that couple of days, we we started to get a feel for it, get used to the thing bucking and jumping around. We still couldn't get it to turn, but and we never did. <laughs> But uh, we started finding out where its strengths were. We could find some grip coming out of the corners um, and different things like that. And of course, the top speed was was fantastic. We had no bottom end, but as long as we could get out of the corners and and try and use some of that grip, uh, then we could keep that momentum down the straight. But yeah, that that first exit, um, and I, I guarantee it was the exact thing that went through Valentino's mind when he uh, when he jumped on the GKD the first time.
0: Most people bring up the fact that you really were the one to tame that beast. There was a great, you know, uh, many riders that have followed you that, that struggled for whatever reason and, you know, maybe even you could argue now that that Dovey gets on, on top of it to, you know, to an extent. Why, why did it click for you? Why did it gel for you, given the problems that you said you, you had to begin with and clearly you worked enormously hard to try and iron the thing out too, didn't you?
1: I don't think it was necessarily the bike that clicked with me. Um it was my second year in i finally had a uh, time manufacturer that was actually giving me decent tires um because being a satellite rider and and third tier satellite rider uh, the year before we, we struggled a lot with tires the bike was fantastic it was capable of winning races in 2006 but we weren't given the same tires that everyone else was um But in 2008, we had a time manufacturer, we had a factory bike, so we knew that we were going to be getting uh, the best that they had to give us to to attain the best result. You know, it wasn't just going to be um, playing the game of who gets what um, like it was the year before. And honestly, I think it's – I don't know how to, to, to say it but it's my lack of pride. I mean, I've still got pride and a little bit of arrogance, everybody does, but I wasn't always sitting there going the grass is greener on the other side. That's the bike I had to ride. So that's the bike I tried to do the work with. So whatever I had, I just did the best job I could with it every weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some weekends it worked for us very well. Other weekends it didn't. We had to settle for for average results. But um, I think it was just the fact that I didn't always look across to the other garages or the other bikes and go, oh, we've got no chance this weekend because the Yamaha's working on that track or the Honda's working on that track. Um, We always just concentrated on ourselves, focused on ourselves and did the best job we could. And I think that's what, you know, the results started to come to us.
0: That's the end of part one of my chat with Casey Stoner. Make sure you check out the second instalment where he opens up on that once intense rivalry with Valentino Rossi, his move into supercars and the reason behind his decision to stop racing. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcast1australia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.